Hello, I'm Richard Quest, in for Julia Chatterley this morning. And we start in Afghanistan, where the Taliban are demanding that U.S. forces leave the country by the end of this month. Otherwise, they say it is a clear violation of their agreement with the United States. The problem is, is obvious. Some 13,000 people are said to remain inside the perimeter of the airport waiting to leave. While outside, Afghans fleeing the Taliban takeover are growing increasingly desperate. Can they all be evacuated in the remaining time? CNN's Sam Kyler reports from Kabul. A massive multinational air evacuation is crowding the airspace above Kabul. This cuttery flight is one of many coming to the rescue of thousands. Uh, keep close. The airplane brings its own security as the airport is now under threat from ISIS terror. Okay. We've landed just a few moments ago here at Kabul International Airport and clearly the pace of evacuation has been picking up. There are planes leaving pretty regularly now and large numbers of refugees, of evacuees, getting ready to get on those flights. This is a group that are heading uh, into Qatar, uh, where they're hoping then to either stay there or move on. Guillaume, uh, you're about to leave. What is going through your mind and your, and your heart at the moment? Yeah, the, uh, actually, uh, I've told this many times with others that right now I have a mixed feeling. Uh, being a journalist myself, it, uh, probably I, I'm lucky enough to leave because of a lot of traits that exist here. Uh, but I'm also... Uh, leaving a family, a whole family behind, and that's a, a, a lot of friends behind. I don't know that how to describe this. Am I happy? Am I sad? With this government, with these new rulers, uh, they, I, I'm sure they, they will not leave us any space to be here. That must break your heart. Of course, certainly. That, 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 that has, already, uh, has already broken, but you know, that's the reality. <laughs> your heart is already broken? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Good luck. It's not just the personal tragedies that are so heartbreaking here. It is the tragedy of Afghanistan itself. For 20 years, so many millions of people believed that they would receive Western support. They believed in the evolution of female education, of the arts, of cinema. They thought they had a future. Now that future is getting on aircraft and leaving. As one of the evacuees just said to me, Afghanistan is seeing a total brain drain. Sam Kiley, CNN, the Kabul International Airport. As the new week gets underway in the next hour, President Biden is to meet his national security team when they will discuss the current crisis in Afghanistan. It happens as the U.S. Defense Department is mobilizing commercial airlines to facilitate the evacuations from various waypoints and take evacuees to final destinations. At least 18 flights are to be used to further transfer people who have already left Afghanistan. Kylie Atwood is with us from Washington, D.C. Um, the, the number one goal now is to speed up the evacuations from the airport. But now there's this wrinkle the Taliban say they will not extend or that it's believed they won't extend the deadline from the end of the month. Yeah, and that's significant here because the timeline really matters when you're talking about 
the total number of people that the United States can facilitate on these evacuation flights. Significantly, we know that in a recent 24-hour period on U.S. military aircraft, there were more than 10,000 people that were evacuated from Kabul. That is the highest number in a 24-hour period that we have seen. It means that they are reaching capacity. They're finally essentially, you know, getting this operation, which has been plagued by chaos, plagued by violence on the way to the airport, sort of up and running. But as you note, as that's happening, they're also facing this deadline, this August 31st deadline. It's a self-imposed deadline. But as you say, it doesn't seem like the Taliban are going to want to extend it. Now, President Biden said yesterday that U.S. military officials were discussing the possibility of extending it. But he also said that he would like to see everything completed before August 31st. And I think a major question is, what exactly uh, does completion here, success here, look like for the United States? Uh, We have heard President Biden very clearly say that any American who wants to get out will be given the opportunity, will get out of Afghanistan. But what we don't know is the number of Afghans that this administration is looking to get out of the country, those Afghans who worked alongside U.S. troops and diplomats before the U.S. military presence leaves that Kabul airport. And once they leave, there's a lot of questions about if that airport can even run any longer, uh, what kind of flights a Taliban will be allowing in and out. So that is why this timeline here really matters so much. And then there is this question of, of the evacuees, and I don't mean American citizens, I'm talking about the Afghan evacuees, who are now starting to build up in sizable numbers at transfer points, whether it be Germany or whether a particular one in Qatar. Now, the SIVs, special immigrant visas, we know about. What about the rest? Well, that's right. We know one of the problems here has been capacity to process those Afghan SIVs. That's a specific group of the Afghans who've applied for a special visa because of their work alongside U.S. diplomats. But there are also other groups of Afghans who are applying for refugee status, uh, different kinds of visas to the United States. So it's a little bit complicated because they're processing uh, different kinds of visas, um, Afghans who have different kinds of backgrounds, different paperwork, different reasons for applying. This is not a straightforward one, two, three process here. And that is one of the complicating factors. Uh, We should note that President Biden made it very clear yesterday in his remarks that none of the Afghans who are leaving Afghanistan are flying directly to the United States. They are all going to Qatar and then to these other places where they can be processed, where their background check can be reviewed. Of course, that comes as there has been some fear mongering within the Republican Party about those Afghans coming directly to the United States without background checks. That is just not correct. That's not what's happening. Um, But this process here, this incredibly complicated process, is one of the things that's slowing things down. And we should know that State Department officials who were on the ground in Afghanistan recognized that this was going to be a possibility. They wrote a dissent memo to the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, in mid-July. One of the things that they said is that there should be a biometric data program that's created for all of these Afghan SIVs. That wasn't done soon enough, so it's very haphazard right now in terms of trying to get this done, but many different um, different processes that they're having to apply. Thank you. Kylie Atwood's at the State Department in Washington, and we'll watch the events there as they unfold during this Monday. 
And as President Biden attempts to get ahead of the crisis and the days count down, let's discuss this. Nick Payton Walsh is with me from Doha in Qatar. First, Nick, I- I'm curious, the people who are at the airport in Kabul. Now, you've got two groups of people. You've got those who are now within the perimeter. Are all of those people expected either by one nation or another to get out, to be evacuated? And then you've got those on the outside of the perimeter, many of whom will be legitimate evacuees and some will be trying. Yeah, and there's a third group, those who are not even near the perimeter in Kabul, who have a legitimate right to potentially apply for this special immigrant visa status. Those in the airport, as far as I understand, many of them may not really supposed to be there as part of any official process. But there was a couple of days in which basically the perimeter sort of seemed to collapse and people got on for all sorts of reasons, depending on who you knew, how well you could bluff your way on. They're still there and there are still some coming on, it seems, because of their contacts with the Afghan special forces that run the security perimeter at the edge. That explains why, even though we've had this extraordinary airlift of 10,000 people People in the past 24 hours that there are still 10,000 on parts of that airport, mostly Afghan, not entirely clear what their official status is, but most likely going to get flown out. So that is something, of course, that they'll have to work out down the line as to quite how far down the system they get once they've left Kabul. But I think with the chaos and the strategy ahead, it's hard to leave that number of Afghans, many of whom are sort of young men sat there waiting on the tarmac. What next? Well, I am amazed at the operation, frankly, in the last 24 hours. 10,000 out is extraordinary. If they keep that up, they could begin to wrap this down potentially in the next two days or so. But the real question, Richard, is how much more do they want to do here? Now, I understand uh, from a source close situation that there could be as many as 4,000 local employees of the U.S. Embassy uh, and their family members in and around Kabul who want to get onto that airport and get out, who are likely either recipients of special immigrant visas or eligible for them. Now, some may have that already left of that 4,000, but it's not clear. So a very urgent task, of course, for US diplomats there is to make sure the people they sat next to work with day in, day out are safe. It's obviously a hugely important moment for the United States as well in terms of its credibility. So as we edge towards August the 31st and, you know, I don't think anybody really thinks they want to sort of tell the Taliban they're staying longer than that deadline. And I understand from the source I'm speaking to that there is no discussion at this point of anyone going past that date. We've got about a week. And in that week, you have to finish your evacuations, maybe 10,000 a day, and you have to get your 6,000 troops off. So at some point, that troop withdrawal has to start during this closing week, Richard. Now, Nick, um, the real politic of this is what ability do you think the U.S. has to look the Taliban in the eye and say, we are going to finish this evacuation come what may. We strongly suggest you don't interfere. Leave us alone to get what we've got to do. Get it done. Um, I don't think really they have the appetite for this at this particular time. They seem quite reliant on, I say Taliban goodwill, that sounds wrong, but the Taliban not interfering with their operation at the moment in order to get people to the airport through the various alternate routes, which 
Uh, they're not discussing in greater detail for security reasons. The Taliban are checking documents. The Taliban have until this point, apart from a security incident uh, in, at four o'clock this morning that is entirely clear who was behind it, appear to have let them get on with it, or despite uh, checkpoints on the road towards and harassment of people trying to get to it around the airport. They don't appear to be getting in the US's way necessarily. So they very publicly stated you need to be gone by August the 31st. President Joe Biden has said he would do that. And so the idea, I think, of them saying, the United States saying, OK, after all of this, we're just going to keep doing this as long as we need till we finish the job. I would be surprised because you have to look at the real politic of this too. This is a PR disaster for the United States. Every day it continues. And they'll be a victim of their own success. This extraordinary airlift they've pulled off. I mean, remarkable, valiant work by diplomats and Marines and airmen to make this happen does mean that people will be thinking, well, hang on a minute, they're moving people. Maybe I have a chance. It's very hard to get anywhere near the airport. The gates are all closed. So it's not really like it was a few days ago when you can sort of hope to get in a crowd and get your way over if you're lucky. But there will have to come a point where they have to say that's it. And that, too, of course, will trigger a reaction in people who are desperate to get on. So it is a lose-lose situation, really, for the United States, but one that incurs greater losses and damage the longer it goes on for. So I would be surprised if we're still doing this in September, Richard. Nick, thank you. Nick Petermosh in Doha. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, the economy of Afghanistan. Who knows what will happen next? Well, Afghan's former central bank governor himself had a harrowing escape from Kabul. He spoke to CNN's Matt Egan and about the country's economic future. The plane that you see people scrambling to get on, I was on that plane that evening. Uh, at some point, I think I realized that it wasn't going to take off. And so we went on the tarmac. And at that point, it was a surreal experience where uh, various helicopters were taking off, planes were taking off, uh, people were running for any plane that they could find. And, and I was able to find one where... Uh, I did not have a ticket to, but where I somewhat forced my way on um, and and uh, I was very fortunate to get out. How worried were you for your own safety? I think that you said on Twitter that you heard gunshots while you were at the airport. Sure. At that point, once the president of a country announces that he's no longer in country, the whole chain of command falls apart. So there's no police. There's no air traffic controllers. It's every person for themselves at that stage. What went through your mind when you learned that President Ghani had left the country? Uh, it was shock, complete shock. I couldn't believe it. It was disbelief. Uh, there had always been talk of, of, of staying till the bitter end, of fighting. And uh, for him to have left without senior staff or other staff or in making a speech or informing the public about it, I think was not the right decision. I think a lot of people feel that way. Now, former President Ghana, he's denied allegations that he left the country with a large sum of money. Do you have any reason to doubt him? Uh, again, I was not on the plane. I was not with him at that time. And there were a lot of decisions that I mentioned I was not happy with. Uh, at the same time, I can say that we were, again, facing dollar shortages. So we did not have dollars coming in. And so unless he had an alternative source of cash uh, with him available to him, uh, I would be skeptical of that report, although I cannot deny it. Could he have gotten it from the, the central bank that you were in charge of? Absolutely not. So now that the Taliban is in charge, how much access to the central bank money do they have? 
I mentioned this, um, that Afghanistan had uh, a relatively high amount of central bank reserves, $9 billion approximately. Uh, those, as, as is the norm with any central bank, are typically held in liquid assets, such as U.S. Treasuries or gold, uh, and all of them are held abroad, essentially all. So my expectation, I believe uh, it's, it's already come true, is that the U.S. Treasury would freeze those assets. Uh, so the amount of accessible reserves um, has dropped from $9 billion to a very low amount uh, on the order of, um, let's say, uh, a few 10, 10 million or, or, or less or more. So it's a very small amount. So you could say that the import coverage ratio, which is a common metric, uh, has dropped from more than 15 months to less than a, a week. And how important is it, uh, given the way that the Afghanistan economy is structured to have access to uh, U.S. dollars? It's vital. Um, Afghanistan runs a very large uh, trade deficit, which needs to be financed. And uh, that had been occurring through donor inflows over the past few years. And, and that was the reason why we had been able to accumulate significant international reserves. Now, with the stock of reserves having been frozen and the flow likely to significantly decline, I think it's going to cause um, economic hardships for the new regime. Now, the people of Afghanistan have already gone through a, a very traumatic time in just the past few weeks. Um, what happens to food prices going forward? If inflation goes up, that means food prices uh, will also go up, and that's going to cause economic hardship. So I, I would stress that, um, that uh, humanitarian assistance not only needs to remain, but needs to be increased um, over the next few days and months. The central bank governor, or the former central bank governor from Afghanistan on the economic outlook. As you and I continue on first move, a milestone in COVID-19, Pfizer's vaccine set for full FDA approval, most likely before the day is finished, and charities using donated air miles to get migrants to safety. U.S. health officials today expected to remove some of the regulatory uncertainty about the COVID vaccines. Full FDA approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech is said to be imminent. Now, the reason it's significant is it could boost vaccination rates. Many uh, vaccinant, hesitant people have said it's only because they it is not full approval, just emergency use authorization. Elizabeth Cohen is with me, senior medical correspondent. Um, is it likely to make much difference? I mean, uh, are there that number of people who have been holding back because it is EUA rather than full approval? Richard, I think you ask a good question because this gets pretty weedy, whether something has emergency authorization versus full approval. Are people really following it that closely? Are we going to see this sort of tidal wave of people saying, ah, now I'll get it because it is full FDA approval? I'm not so sure that it will, but there may be some people who are kind of teetering on the edge. And for that reason, they will go get it. So let's take a look at the ways in which full approval, which, as you said, is expected imminently, could help. Number one, could encourage folks who've been hesitant and are waiting for it. And number two, 
businesses um, and schools and restaurants who've been hesitant to mandate it may now say, okay, now I feel better mandating because it has full approval. Let's take a look at vaccination rates in the U.S. They were up in the spring. They tanked in the early summer. They're now going up slightly, slightly, slightly because people got scared watching people die of the Delta variant. And now let's take a look in the United States, sort of who's left to vaccinate. There's 82 million people who have not yet been vaccinated. That's about 29% of the eligible population not gotten even one shot. Richard? On this question of why we're all doing booster shots and the like, um, there is this growing uncertainty about the length uh, of of vaccination efficacy. Israel is one particular example because it did start vaccinating much sooner. It is now boosting because they're also seeing, according to reports, that an increase in hospitalizations. If that's true, Elizabeth, does that blow a hole in the whole sort of strategy? It doesn't blow a hole in the strategy. In fact, I think it sort of supports the strategy that you need to be doing these third shots. So Israel's been doing them sort of, you know, piece by piece, you know, compromised people, then older people and so on. It's really just been a number of weeks since they've been do that, doing that. So you wouldn't necessarily see those hospitalization rates go down very quickly. Um, so I think everyone is looking to Israel to see what happens with their hospitalization rates. I think what we're finding out is that vaccines last for different amounts of time. If you look sort of through the history of vaccination, some last longer than others. This one, according to the data that U.S. sources are quoting, it looks like at around eight months it starts to wane. People first started getting vaccinated back in December. So we're seeing the vaccine wane. And it was the most vulnerable people who started out, right? It was the immune compromised. It was the elderly people who got it long ago. And now we're seeing that it just needs a boost. So actually, I think this is a sign that says, hey, it looks like folks are doing the right thing. I think that many eyes will be looking at Israel to see how their hospitalizations look since they've been doing this third booster shot um, for the longest period of time. Elizabeth Cohen, thanks. Thank you. Now to thanks. the markets and the trading week's about to get underway six minutes from now uh, on Wall Street. You can see the numbers there. The major averages are on track. Solid gains. It was a pullback last week, but we are now expecting to see a, an improvement, and that could be records before the day is out. We'll talk about that on Quest Means Business. Energy stocks amongst the big gainers as oil prices are bouncing, reversing seven days of losses. Strong gains for both the major benchmarks. And in Asia, a strong week ahead too. Hang Zhang up 1% after. So it was a bear market on the regulatory concerns out of China. Now it's put on some weight. The Nikkei in Tokyo, again, 1.5%. And the mail event for all global investors, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, will give his Jackson Hole speech on monetary policy and will be looking for tapering guidance, cutting stimulus, all the sort of ideas that he is. And, of course, the rising number of covid cases and how that's affecting the economic recovery. It will be delivered virtually again this year from Jackson Hole because of the Delta variant concerns. Tony Crescenzi is with me, market strategist, portfolio Hi, manager. Uh, Pimco, good to see you. Okay. Same here. Jackson Hole is an interesting speech because it's more detailed, it's not generalities, uh, and, it, and even though it's a speech, the Fed uses it as a way to tell other central bankers what it's thinking of doing. So what will you be looking for? <laughs> Well, I've already, I think we already uh, have a lot of information to judge what might be said uh, simply in the, the main topic of the, uh, 
gathering is on macroeconomic policy. We haven't seen that in four years. Typically in the phrase, the subject matter, uh, the, the words monetary policy are shown. So this says something, it may be symbolic, of course, it probably isn't meant to be a message, but I think it does tell us that monetary policy has reached its practical limits in terms of what it can do to help economies. It's up to the fiscal authorities now to do more, because if in the 2020s growth is right. to accelerate, there has to be the sort of investment that the U.S. is trying to embark on now. So what do you, you know, as a market strategist, what do you do if you're an investor? And you're looking at this current environment and, and you're not playing sort of the, the game of, uh, of, of follow the trend or you're not sort of doing rotations. You're just sitting there waiting to know what to do next. And markets, by the way, are very highly valued at the moment. Equities are highly valued. Right. Right. Well, um, that's one way to think about it, at least in the bond market, for example. There's certain corporate bonds, cash corporate bonds that have very low yield spreads over higher quality bonds, including U.S. Treasuries. So what pain is there to give up that yield and move into something that's more liquid and safer for a little while to show what could be called patient opportunism to expect that there will be volatility markets because that does reflect the whims of human beings. And now and then there will be these reactions to things that come along that uh, we can't predict now. But the way to, to be prepared, of course, is to create a portfolio that's more liquid, resi resilient and agile to have a little bit so, more cash than normal because there isn't much pain to do that. When we started the year, we were looking at a bumper year. I get the feeling that the best gains of the year have been had. And yet I don't know. I mean, you're nodding. Um, and yet I still feel, well, if tapering is on the cards and the market likes it, and economic growth is okay, then the last quarter could also be good. Do you? Well, as a, with a long-term orientation, which we at PIMCO would suggest, uh, we can't say uh, for sure, but, uh, and one has to think past it. Uh, and thinking past it means looking forward to the next year or two in terms of cash flow. What matters to an investor in terms of uh, portfolio returns. It's cash flow. Does a company generate more cash flow to pay higher dividends, to have more profits, to pay you back if you're a bond investor? <clears throat> Those are the sorts of things to be thinking about. And cash flow generation uh, is likely to be good the next year, probably two years. In fact, the S&P 500 earnings projection is for double digits next year and the year after. And that is a, uh, that should provide the long-term oriented right. investor with comfort. All that said, Yes, sir. So how much of that is priced in at these frothy levels, do you think? A reasonable portion, but um, there's always some uh, risk premium in markets. And we would judge that markets are priced for what's called a mid-cycle uh, stage uh, right now, which means that an investor need be far more selective than normal. So, yes, um, there probably will be gains to be had in the next couple of years because economic growth is likely to be above a growth potential, which is around 2%. So look for 3% growth, for example, next year. But picking the right companies, the right industries, the right countries to invest in requires a lot of work at this point. Uh, this is typical for mid-cycle investing, and we'd suggest uh, thinking along those lines. Excellent thoughts. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. As you and I continue, the charity that uses frequent flyer miles to evacuate 
refugees. And if you've got some spare frequent flyer miles, dig deep into your pocket. I'll tell you about it after the break. President Biden has called the evacuations from Afghanistan, in his words, one of the largest and most difficult airlifts in history. On Friday, the Ramstein Air Base in Germany became a nerve center of the operation. Southwest of Germany, in Germany, and one of the biggest U.S. bases outside the U.S. itself. During the weekend, 36 flights carrying more than 7,000 evacuees landed at Ramstein Air Base. And amid the chaos and despair, there were some small moments of joy, as CNN's Atika Schubert reports. An image of hope amid the chaos. A baby girl born in the cargo bay of a U.S. Air Force C-17 carrying Afghan evacuees. As the plane landed at Ramstein Air Base, the 86th Medical Group rushed in to safely deliver her. So when I evaluated the patient, we were past the point of no return. Um, that baby was going to be de- delivered before we could possibly transfer her to another facility. Um, so we were just opening our emergency equipment. What was the moment when you realized we're going to be okay? Um, when the baby came out screaming and we were able to put her directly on mom's chest and get her breastfeeding right away. Um, I was like, okay, we're good here. <laughs> Ramstein Air Base in Germany has become the latest hub for evacuation flights out of Afghanistan. CNN filmed as some of the first flights arrived. More than 6,000 have been evacuated here, with 17 flights landing in 24 hours, airbase officials say, and more to come. Here, there is safety, basic shelter, food and water, but it is only a temporary measure. Many here do not know where they will go next or how. But for the moment, there is relief and reason to celebrate new life. The charity Miles for Migrants lets us donate air miles to help refugees travel to safety. Now, the partners include the Red Cross and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And in the past few weeks, it's been working with organizations in Afghanistan to book flights out. Those commercial flights have now been cancelled, of course, after the Taliban takeover. Andy Friedman's with me, the co-founder and managing director of Miles for Migrants. So the U.S., Forces and other nations' forces are bearing the brunt of moving people. In fact, they're doing all the work of moving people from Afghanistan to transit points. Where do you now come into this? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me, Richard. Um, Just to to step back. So Miles for Migrants, as you mentioned, we're an organization that collects donations of frequent flyer miles and credit card points um, to reunite and fly people to safe new homes, specifically those who have been displaced, refugees, asylees. Um, In the case of Afghanistan, where we come in is we're working very closely with our partners um, that once people have made it out of Afghanistan, how do we get them to a safe um, community, Um, typically family? Um, In the case of the U.S., people are arriving in the U.S. at um, U.S. military bases. Um, We're on standby to fly people to their final destinations. In fact, just yesterday, uh, we flew um, a husband and wife and their child. Um, uh, The husband was a, a... interpreter for the U.S. military. Um, The wife was 35 weeks pregnant, um, and we feel very fortunate to be able to have helped play a small role in getting her to her family in in Texas. Besides Afghanistan, there are refugees and and people seeking asylum around the world. On average, how many people do you move? How many miles do you go through? Mm. 
Yeah. So the organization, we started the organization in 2016. So we have been around over five years. In that time, we've flown over 5,700 people. Um, those people originated from over 70 countries across the globe. Um, and where we step in is we fly people who are legally approved to travel um, and just need help making that final leg. Uh, so we, we're flying hundreds of people every month right now. In fact, in this year alone, since the start of 2021, oh. um, I believe we've flown over 2,700 people. So the number of geeks watching, myself included, want to know how this works. I've got X number of miles in my frequent flyer account. I know I can donate miles. That, that's yeah. been clear to donate to charities. But if I donate them to you, how does it work? Yeah, so, so one of the things that is quite unique about us as a charity is the direct impact that you can have. Um, with many of the airline programs that we work with, uh, you as a donor would be kind of pledging your miles. And when we find a match, um, so a nonprofit partner might find us a case that needs to be flown, for example, in the U.S. from, from Newark to San Diego or, or vice versa, um, uh, we would contact you and you would help be involved in the booking of that individual. We do have more strategic partnerships with some airlines, specifically Air Canada um, and United, um, and where we can pool those miles. Um, but in many of the airlines right now, um, it's a pledging process where we put those miles to use when we find a match to use them. Okay. And the... I suppose people watching will say, well, do they get good value? I mean, are they mm. using, I'm sorry, you know, are, they, are they buying standard rewards and paying eight, nine times the miles necessary versus safer rewards? And the only reason I ask this, of course, and the good work you do is you are hoping people are going to donate miles. And those who donate want to make sure that the miles are being used in the same way as cash, as wisely as possible. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is actually part of something we take great pride in is uh, our efficiency of how we use the donations. Um, and we look at things like cost per point um, and make sure that every flight that we book, um, we're finding the best award availability. And if, and if it's cheaper to book with cash, we will do that. Um, the flights that we've flown to date, um, the cash value of those flights is well over $2 million, um, which is a stat that we're, we're very proud of. And uh, finally, what do you need now besides people to donate Miles, what is it you actually need? You obviously need more airlines to, to sort of work closely. I mean, you could have miles and just sign up and buy the tickets, but what do you need? Yeah, what, what we do need is, uh, number one is what you just said. We need the airlines to come to us or we will come to you and, and partner with us. Find other ways to make um, us as an organization more effective um, and being able to help Afghans um, and many other displaced persons across the globe. Um, what else we need is just to continue to spread the word. Um, I think one of the things that's often lost in refugee resettlement is what happens when people arrive in their safe community. Um, so I would encourage anyone out there who's looking to make a difference right now, um, reach out to your local organizations that are supporting um, refugees. See how you can lend a hand because there's, there's plenty of opportunity to support. When we finish this discussion, I will be more than happy to donate some of my miles as you can imagine from uh, a business traveler and world of wonder, I've gathered a mile or two over the years. So put me down for a couple of tickets. I'll send you the miles Thank you, after we come off air. Thank you. And we will have details, of course, as where you can uh, donate miles as well. Those of you who've got them, don't use it. Do you know how many percentage of miles are actually used, by the way? And interestingly, <laughs> miles are now, thank you, sir. Now miles are now gained by non-flying goals and things like that. So... There's plenty of you with miles that you may not use or have no intention of using. Donate them away. We'll continue on first move. Okay, so full steam ahead for global trade, in particular, 
the shipping industry. But the CEO of Maersk is talking about stretched supply chains in a moment. This is CNN Breaking News. Well, the news is in. The FDA has now granted full approval to the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. This for people aged 16 and older. This is the first coronavirus vaccine given full approval by the FDA. To this point, remember, it's been under what's known as emergency use authorization. Still safe. and Many tens of millions of people have been vaccinated. However, big changes expected with this, including opening the door to more vaccine mandate. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. I mean, in the scheme of things, this is pretty remarkable uh, speed to get to full approval for a vaccine such as this. It is remarkable. I mean, they just started the clinical trials um, about 13 months ago. I mean, that is really amazing. People were talking, oh, it'll take four or five years. They went from 13 months to, from starting the trial to full approval. That is really quite amazing. Now, unfortunately, about a third of the United States hasn't seen it as amazing as this sort of medical miracle that we were given. Some people see it as, wait a minute, that's a little too fast for my taste. I don't care that more than 40,000 people were involved in the clinical trial and that it was declared safe and effective. I want full approval. I want them to take more time. The hope is, is that those people will now roll up their sleeves now that there's full approval. It's unclear exactly how many people feel that way, that full approval will make a difference. One thing, however, is clear, Jim, you talked about mandates. Now, some places are already doing mandates. If you want to sit inside a New York City restaurant, you need to be vaccinated. That's been true now for um, for a little bit of time. So they did that even without full approval. The hope is and the plan is, is that more businesses, more employers, more restaurants will say, you know what, we have full approval. We're going to mandate it in the same way that daycares and schools and universities and universities they mandate vaccines with full approval all the time you cool um without a with um without a without getting certain vaccines like measles and mumps and whatnot i mean you you are required to have them vaccinated or to have some kind of religious exemption the hope is is that this vaccine will now be one of them it will just be standard that you will have to be vaccinated to do mm-hmm. all sorts of things such as go to school Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. We also have Jeremy Diamond at the White House. And Jeremy, as you know, uh, getting a handle on COVID, big priority, arguably the biggest priority for the Biden administration. They met some of their goals. They were slower to get to some of their other vaccination goals. Tell us how the Biden administration is uh, receiving this news and what it plans to do next now that now that full approval has been granted. Yeah, this is obviously something that the White House has been waiting for, hoping that the FDA would do soon. Um, And and so obviously they're elated to see this finally come through. But of course, one thing that the White House wanted to make clear throughout this process was that they were not interfering. They were not pressuring the FDA in any way to approve this vaccine. They let that process play out independently on its own. uh, And that is exactly what has happened. And because of that independent process, there's certainly a hope inside the White House that this now makes it irrefutable uh, for anybody who wants to question the safety and the effectiveness of this vaccine, that the FDA went through this independent process Uh, looked at all of the various studies, the safety, the efficacy, uh, and was able to make this conclusion. And to Elizabeth's point, there is certainly a hope in the White House that not only will this perhaps help change, uh, you know, maybe two out of uh, two to three out of every 10 people who are unvaccinated to perhaps 
convince them to get vaccinated, but mostly that it will encourage businesses and institutions and universities to fully enforce vaccine mandates. Uh, that is something that uh, uh, those businesses and organizations have signaled to the White House they would do. So now we'll have to wait and see how quickly uh, that moves forward. Well, the U.S. military, one of those institutions, Secretary Austin, uh, telegraphing that a short time ago. Uh, Jeremy Diamond, hold on for a moment. Uh, we're also joined now by Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Executive Associate Dean, Emory University School of Medicine at Grady. Uh, Dr. Del Rio, great to have you on. Couple questions for you. First, just for folks watching here. Uh, yes, this came more quickly uh, than often happens, but there's an enormous amount of data and the data shows a very effective and safe vaccine. I'm drawn to the number we just had on the screen, 363 million vaccine doses administered in this country so far. Tell us, for folks listening who perhaps have not gotten the vaccine, why they should be confident in the process here. Well, Jim, I think several things have happened. Number one, you know, since the vaccine was given emergency use authorization back in December, as you have said to us, uh, there have been uh, millions of doses of vaccine administered. And the system has worked in the sense that post the EUA, there has been very good surveillance for side effects. And little side effects have been picked up. And as you realize, those side effects have been mostly uh, mild, few, and far between. And when you look at them, you know, the, the safety of the vaccine, clearly the efficacy is, is, is tremendous. And the safety is, is really fantastic. So the, the system has worked. And what the FDA has done is it has, you know, reviewed a lot of information, millions of pages of information that had allow, has allowed them to make this, this recommendation to give what's called a biological you know, approval, sort of the, the final approval of the, of the Pfizer COVID vaccine for people 16 year olds, 16 year old and older. As you realize, for under 15, they're still reviewing the information. They're still, uh, you know, looking at the data. And basically, just, you know, I have all more respect for the, for the FDA scientists because they really do their job well and they really take their job very seriously. Okay. Let's talk about the difference that this can make. You, you've, dealt with a lot of patients, some of those patients reluctant, uh, resistant to taking this vaccine. There is talk, we heard this from the Surgeon General a short time ago, that full approval might move those people. And by the way, there's some polling that shows that full approval, at least some of these people have said, hey, once it's fully approved, I'm okay with it. In your experience, is this, is this a mover? Is this a game changer for people like that? Yes, I think it will be a game changer for a variety of reasons. Number one, I've heard from many people say, well, you know, uh, this is an emergency use authorization. I'm not ready until there's a full approval. And I think, however, that that there's a few, there's very few people that actually will go will say, well, I am ready to now take it because it has changed. The reality is that that change for most people is not that significant. It is significant, however, for corporations. I think many mm -hmm. corporations, and I can tell you, for example, you know. I know uh, Delta Airlines, Delta has said we're not going to mandate the vaccine until receives until receives full approval. So many corporations are going to wait until that full approval in order to mandate. And this allows it now to be, you know, something that you do with a lot of confidence and say, well, now that it has full approval, I can go ahead and, and mandate the vaccine. But the other thing that it does is once the product has full approval, the company can then go ahead and advertise in television, which they haven't been able to do up to now. And it also can be sold at, 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 at you know, pharmacies and other places, which it hasn't happened up to now. And those three are very important things because, again, 
seeing more about the vaccine in the media through yeah. uh, through advertisement, I think is going to make also a difference for many people who up to now have only been hearing government officials and public health mm -hmm. officials talk about the vaccine. Well, listen, the data shows it saves lives. Let's hope that message comes out. We're going to have much more on this breaking news at the top of the hour. That is the FDA giving full approval to the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, thanks very much. It's a new week on Wall Street, and newer stocks are moving higher in early trading after last week's modest losses. The future pace of Fed stimulus will be in focus all this week as we count down to an important speech by the Fed Chair, by Fed Chair Powell on Friday. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris is touring Southeast Asia, where she's shoring up relations with regional partners on top of security issues with China. The vice president is also concerned about demand for goods outstripping supply, especially with chip production. During my trip to Denmark last week, the chief executive of the shipping giant Maersk explained why global trade in, is in overdrive and what that means for shipping and logistics. Right now in global trade, there's a massive demand, uh, a massive demand in the factories, in, in landside logistics, on the ships, uh, everywhere. The, the pipeline, so to, speak, so to speak, is bursting at its seams because of two things. Uh, first of all, there's very, very strong demand led by the U.S. and all of the stimulus money that has gone into, into products uh, uh, to the U.S. consumer. On, on top of that, there's a huge inventory uh, rebuilding cycle going on. Because we've depleted, demand has depleted that which was in stock. Yeah, and, and also because at la a year ago, in the second quarter of 2020, a lot of companies stopped buying in Asia or really scaled down their, their purchases because nobody knew where the world was going. We thought that we would have a major uh, uh, global crisis. But then, then the stimulus came and demand came roaring back. So where exactly is the supply chain issue? Is it at the manufacturers? Or is it at the commodities and raw materials? Is it in the shipping and the distribution? I keep hearing about it, but where is it? I, I'd say pretty much everywhere. You've seen it starting with commodity prices going up, lots of uh, shortages, for instance, of computer chips and so on, and then all the way through the supply chain and the logistics chains, lacking rail capacity in the U.S., trucking power and, and so on. So it's all over the place. We're seeing inflation. Now, the argument of inflation is it's, it's at commodity level, it's at manufacturing level, but it's also at shipping level. Rates have gone through the roof, and that is contributing to global inflation at the moment, particularly in countries like the US and uh, in Europe. No, there's no doubt that we see inflationary uh, uh, inflation creeping creeping up for the reasons that you just uh, you just uh, stated. Uh, I do expect, however, that that things will uh, will normalize as we work out through this period of extraordinary demand, and as as inventories fill up again. You're turning the ship around, literally the ship of Maersk, towards logistics. How easy is it turning to be? Well, well, we are, we are we are growing our landside logistics business a lot, simply by sell, selling uh, landside logistics products to to our customers on the ocean, and and in many cases creating a more integrated solution, a more end-to-end -end solution. Problem, and that, that's going quite well. The problem is everybody's doing it. Everybody wants to manage another company's logistics and i'll grant you you've got great experience you've got ships you know how to move things but but you know what about is it worth it i think in in today's market it's quite powerful to be able to offer an integrated solution where you take 
responsibility for for the whole move from 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 the door from door to door, uh, and that that's that's why we have been growing so strongly during the pandemic. Last quarter we grew 36% organically in our logistics business. If we take, for example, the Delta variant, which is now starting to hit Asia, and you see the measures that China's taking at the moment, is this how is this going to affect you and your ability to export out of China? Well, uh, China has uh, as a as a you know, it's combating COVID with very drastic measures, basically closing down ports uh, if, if they have a handful of cases. And, and that, of course, uh, is adding to the disruptions uh, that we all re- already have and, and will make it diff- more difficult for us. What did you make of that, the closing down of the port last week because of one case? What did you make of it? Well, we have a different strategy, a different strategy in the West, but we have also had many more cases. So, so it's hard for me to judge what is the right way. But obviously, for global logistics change, you know, when you close a port, it, it has consequences. So, have you got vaccine mandates? No, not yet. No. But but we will. I think I'm pretty sure we will at oh, some point. Okay. So, forgive me. I'm going to push you here. You say not yet, but we will. What are you waiting for? Enough vaccines. Uh, so, so, so our seafarers, of course, uh, they come from Western Europe, uh, some from the U.S., but majority are Indians, Filipinos, uh, Myanmar, and, and, and so on. And there, uh, we cannot rely on, on governments to actually provide the vaccines. We have to, as a company, pr- provide, the, provide the whole setup, and that's what we are, we, are, we are establishing. And it's only very recently that we, as a private company, was even able to buy the vaccines. So, so, uh, so once we have have uh, control over that logistics setup, so to speak, for vaccines, we will, uh, we will mandate it. That's first move for today. Thank you for watching. I'll have Quest Means business for you in five hours' time. Connect the words next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.